Hello, welcome to Hope Church Harrogate's message of the week. If you'd like to connect with us, please head over to hopeharrogate.co.uk forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you. It's 1 Corinthians 1, 1 to 9, and I'm reading it from the NIV. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and, knowledge, and all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ amongst you. Therefore, listen to this, therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you wait eagerly, as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm going to hand over to Adam, who's going to be preaching today. Good morning. I want to begin this morning by talking to you about pain that is caused in the church. Pain caused in the church creates a unique, deep ache in a person's heart. It's a unique, deep ache that is too familiar for too many of us in our lives. And I'm conscious this morning as I stand up to speak that I am speaking to a room of people amongst whom I know some of the stories of such pain. I'm conscious that I'm speaking to a room where there are stories I do not know, and I am praying, Lord, help me tread gently in this topic. And I'm conscious that there are stories of pain, not just out there by them, but in here from us. There are stories of pain caused by me, caused by my leadership. Several times in the last few years, I have sat and wept at the sadness of stories I've heard about what's happened in other people's lives in the church, or the discovered corrosive sin in the lives of leaders in the church. It hurts. And it shouldn't be like this. On a couple of occasions in my life as a leader in the church, I have had the awkward moment of needing to intervene at baptism services. And stand next to someone and in real time coach them in what they are saying. Because they have spent their time where they could have been sharing their testimony talking about how lovely the church is. And they've said how welcomed they were and how much love they've received from the people in the church and how being part of the church has changed their life. Now, friends, it's very nice to hear those things. 
And the church is often a really key part of people's story of coming to faith. But it isn't the church that died in our place. It isn't the church that conquered sin and death. It isn't the church that removes our guilt and shame. It isn't the church that rose to new life, that defeated death, so that we can live eternally with God. It's not the church that will one day return to ultimately vanquish evil and make all things new. No, those things are Jesus. And it's Jesus that we want to make much of and to celebrate, especially on baptism mornings. But I would be lying to you if I didn't also say at this point that as I stood up to coach them in real time about pointing at Jesus and not the church, there wasn't a small cynical voice whispering in my head that they don't know the full story about the church. Friends, The church is not perfect. And if you need the church to be perfect, you will end up heartbroken. Nonetheless, the church is called to be far, far healthier than she often is. The church is supposed to be a place of healing, as we've just heard about, not a source of pain. The scriptures, as we read the New Testament, they paint for us a picture of a glorious church. One that, despite her many flaws and failings, is truly beautiful. The church, we're told, is the one that Jesus submitted to a brutal and agonizing death in order to save. He loves you, he died to save you, but more than that, he loves the church. And he died to save the church. The church is the family of the eternal heavenly father and the dwelling place of his spirit on the face of the earth. That's the church that we read about. That's the church that we are all supposed to be. And one of the greatest challenges in the Christian life is holding these two pictures in tension. Number one, the beautiful bride of Christ. And number two, a messy community of hurting and broken people. Does that ring any bells for you? This morning we're starting a new series. It's going to take us the rest of the year. Not this preach, but the series. (laughs) And uh, we'll have a break in the summer, we'll do something else through the holidays. There'll be a few other odd weeks dropped in, but for the rest of 2024, friends, this is us. We are doing this series And we're going to work through Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. You might know it as 1 Corinthians. It's the longest of Paul's letters in the New Testament, which is why it's going to take us most of a year. And there are some sections in this letter that many of us will know and love. Some of them you could probably quote to me right now. There are some sections in this letter that we don't read. Only when we do Bible in a year, when we finally get to that bit, normally 18 months into our Bible in a year program, Do we come to read them? There are some passages in 1 Corinthians that have been utterly foundational for hope and churches like hope in how we do things. And there are some passages in 1 Corinthians that have historically been quite catastrophically misunderstood and misapplied. We are in for a treat. 
It is a truly fascinating letter, and as we read it, I am utterly convinced, and my prayer has been throughout all of the preparation, that we will be transformed individually and together. Here's the first thing you need to know about the church in Corinth to understand 1 Corinthians. It's a quote from the introduction in this book by Andrew Wilson, and if you want Um, Someone to hold your hand as you read through alongside this series, I'd recommend this book, Andrew Wilson, 1 Corinthians for You. And in it, he says this, the Corinthians were a mess, and God loved them anyway. It's good news. The Corinthians were a mess, and God loved them anyway. You know, we can sometimes think that if God only answered all of our prayers and he moved in power, as we do long and pray for him to do that, all of our problems would be solved. Do you ever paint that picture in your head as you pray? Oh God, if you just did this and this and this, man, then it'd be good. Then it'd be good. But then you open your Bible and you read about what happened in Corinth. You see, God moved in power. God moved in power in Corinth, and yet then we carry on reading, and we find that they still have many, many, many problems. The story about the church in Corinth begins in Acts chapter 18. Paul arrives there from Athens on his second missionary journey, and as we read the verses about it, we find that many people in Corinth came to faith in Jesus and were baptized, including, this is my favorite bit, the synagogue leader, Crispus. So the chief Jew gets saved. Him and his whole household gets baptized. Some of the first to do it. Even better, his replacement as synagogue leader, Sosthenes, also gets saved and baptized uh, and is with Paul while he's writing the letter to 1 Corinthians. You've just heard his name in the first verse as Heather read it out. Imagine that. The two key leaders, one after the other, of the Jewish community are saved and turn and follow Jesus in this city. But in the midst of it all, Paul faces significant opposition, as he had in most places that he goes, and actually is close to giving up. He's close to chucking in the towel and leaving, until one night God appears to him in a vision and says to him, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking, for I am with you. I have many people in this city. And so he stays and finds it to be true. After 18 months in Corinth, Paul leaves, he goes home, and he leaves behind in Corinth a church. About three years later, he writes the letter we're going to be looking at, 1 Corinthians. He writes it because some people from Chloe, who was presumably a fairly wealthy businesswoman who had people she employed, come to him in Ephesus, where he now is, and tell him about what's going on in the church. In addition, he gets a letter from the church in Corinth saying, could you just clarify for us a few matters? This is what's going on in the church in Corinth. Are you ready? No? They are quarreling and dividing over which apostle or leader they like the best. So like you sat with the people that like the same leader as you. We, we could do that, I hope. I'm not sure it would be very constructive. There is significant pride and competition going on in the church, which is causing a most unhealthy environment. They've got very confused about sex. Some married, 
Couples have stopped having sex because they don't think God wants them to. Some people are having lots of sex with lots of different people, including prostitutes. One man's having sex with his stepmother, and some people in the church are applauding him for it. They're very confused about sex. When they have communion, some people get drunk and eat all of the food, so that when the poor people who have been at work arrive later, there is nothing left for them to eat. When they gather together in the church, people are so desperate for their gift to be used and their voice to be heard that they're shouting over one another, and it's chaos. Some of them have decided, actually, do you know what? I don't think the resurrection did take place. And they've promised a financial gift to the churches in Judea where there's a famine, and they haven't yet coughed it up. Welcome to the Corinthian church. There's a saying, what's in the world tends to be in the church. What's in the world tends to be in the church. And if I take a few moments to explain what Corinth was like in the first century, you will see the truth of that saying in their setting. In Paul's day, Corinth had recently been resettled. So if you like your Roman history, this one's for you. In 146 BC, the Romans sacked it and they reduced it to a pile of rubble. About 100 years later, Julius Caesar decided that is a really strategic location. Why have we not got something there? And so in 44 BC, just before he was assassinated, he refounded Corinth. And they refounded it by sending Roman veterans and giving them parcels of land in Corinth to have as their own possession. And so you've got a city being founded with people who have endured and emerged from multiple Roman military campaigns. Picture those people for me. Like this is the hardest, strongest, toughest men you can imagine. They've survived war after war. And this is now where they're given their space. And so they move in with their families, presumably, to settle this very strategic key location in central Greece. They have demonstrated their prowess. They have proved that they are men. They've earned their money and they've now retired. And so what happens is a whole load of entrepreneurs also come into the area to open up and to create all kinds of service industries to cater for every want, desire and whim of these successful people. And so when you get to Corinth, when Paul's there, you find a bustling, thriving metropolis, a cosmopolitan city. It was the foremost Greek city of its day. It was bigger and better than Athens, and they liked to tell you about it. One theologian comments on the culture of Corinth like this. He says, Corinth had a deeply competitive, self-sufficient, and entrepreneurial culture marked by ambition to succeed. Its culture was one of self-promotion alone. Remind you of anywhere? A place where people move in their retirement when they've got lots of money, with lots of service industries, where self-promotion is the highest value. What's in the world tends to also be in the church. And to a church that was a mess, as I've described, in a city with a culture that feels kind of like the 21st century, 
Paul writes one Corinthians. He's writing to people in that world. And as we journey through this letter together, we are going to read some incredibly challenging statements. There will be moments where you wince. Just preparing. There will be some moments where you say, wow. How you think should, if this series works well, change during the next 10 months. That's the ambition. You see, in the midst of church pain, we can't just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, well, is what it is. Hurting people hurt people. Move along. Nothing to see here. Do that. That's not what Jesus died for. Jesus died that the church would be beautiful. Jesus died so that the church could be distinct from the world around her. And that's the title for our series, Distinct. And so as we read 1 Corinthians, we're going to see time and again how Paul points them in Corinth and us here today towards the transformation that is needed. Let me start with this question. If you were writing to a church like the church I've just described in Corinth, where you had supporters of different leaders, basically with like hashtag team whatever on their hoodies, who are celebrating incest, neglecting the poor and denying the resurrection, what would your letter say? Mine would be three words long, ten letters. Just stop it. That would be, that would be my letter. Just stop it. Pull yourselves together. Stop it. Paul, in good news for all of us, is much nicer, kinder, and wiser than I am. And his start to the letter to the Corinthians is remarkable. You see, in the nine verses that Heather read for us, what he does is he gently places his hand under their chin and lifts their eyes to the bigger story. And he does so in three ways. Number one, the bigger story, he tells them, is bigger than you. The bigger story was bigger than them. Paul tends to start his letters in the the usual way of the ancient world. He says who he is, who they are, and then he blesses them. You go to any New Testament letter, that's generally how he starts. He says, Paul, blah, 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 to blah, 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 grace and peace to you. That's how you started letters. And then what he normally does is he prays, a prayer of thanksgiving for the church, which is what he does in 1 Corinthians, you'll have noticed. He prays. He prays this, to the church of God. It's not your church. It's not Paul's church. It's the church of God in Corinth. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere. Hey, friends, the church is big, he tells them. You guys are not the main event. To all those Everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, he points them to the great leveler. Everybody needs Jesus. And Jesus is available for everybody. One of the church leaders, sorry, one of the church fathers in the third century, a guy called Origen of Alexandria, 
He was preaching on this verse and he put it like this. Believe in Christ always. Because you were called for no other purpose than to be one with us in him. That's the bigger story. You can walk through life thinking you are kind of a big deal until a bloke from 1800 years ago slaps you across the face with that truth. Hey friend, you were called for no other purpose than to be one with us in him. To be joined into him, Christ, together with God's family across the whole earth, participating with that global family in his eternal purpose to see the hearts of the whole world won back to God. Lift your chin up. Smell the coffee. See the light. The bigger story will sort you out what is telling the church in Corinth. I mean, you want to talk about a meaning-filled, purpose-driven life? You are called for no other purpose than to be one with us in him. You've been called for no other purpose than to be one with the whole church in every nation through all the ages, joining in the grand Missio Dei, the mission of God, which is to see all things renewed under the kingship of Jesus Christ. Hey, tell me again, church in Corinth, how you think you're kind of a big deal. Tell me again how God really needs your gift. The bigger story is bigger than them. It's kind of difficult to be proud in life when you're confronted by a vision of multitudes upon multitudes, all before the throne of God in heaven, and your voice is one of billions. And that is seriously humbling. Lots of church pain, lots of church mess is caused when people start thinking and acting as if God needs them. As if God needs their gift. As if God needs that particular church to fulfill purposes. I love this church. This is a good church. It delights God to work amongst us and to use us. He doesn't need us. He loves us. He likes working through us, but if we weren't here, he'd still do it. We're no great shakes. We're brilliant, but we're no great shakes. We desperately need to remember the bigger story. Each week I get an email newsletter, a substack, if that's your kind of thing, from a guy called Dr. Harvey Quiani, born in Malawi, now based in the UK. He writes about global mission from an African perspective And it's one of the most helpful emails I get in a week because it gets me out of my little world. It's amazing how little Harrogate really is. This week, the email included this story, which I thought was quite fitting, and I'd share it with you. He writes, over the past two months, I've been in conversation with an African pastor who lived in a refugee camp in an African country for about 20 years before being relocated to the United States. There were many Christians in that refugee camp, and so in addition to planting many churches, how are you feeling right now? Important. He also started a Bible school 
where his team taught the basics of theology to many people waiting to be moved to different parts of the world. After his resettling in the United States, he realized that what was missing from the curriculum in the camp was some missions training. If only, the African pastor said, we could teach about the missionary potential in that refugee camp. We would not only bring hope to many that God can make something good out of their situation, we would also prepare them for missional living wherever they resettle. Dr. Harvey Kriani finishes, This, I think, is an important aspect of mission in our current world. God's people are already on the move. How do we partner with them? We need our eyes lifting to the bigger story. I've noticed since I've started predominantly working from home how small my world has become. How few other humans I interact with. We need the bigger story to lift us out of our own little lives. We need the bigger story to remind us of the humility that is fitting for the living. The bigger story, friends, is a balm to the soul. It helps us keep things in perspective. It keeps us humble. The bigger story is bigger than them, is how Paul starts his letter. The second thing he shows them is that the bigger story is the story of grace. You know, Paul starts most of his letters with a prayer of thanksgiving for the church he was writing to. And if you were to read the prayer after this morning at the beginning of his letter to the Philippians, or the beginning of his letter to the Colossians, or the beginning of his letter to the Thessalonians, you would find that in each one he thanks God for that church's love and partnership in the bigger story. That is not what he prays in this letter. The Corinthians are a mess. They are lacking love. And they've lost sight of the bigger story. But still Paul starts by giving thanks. This is what he gives thanks for. He thanks God that the Corinthians have received God's grace. <laughs> it should make you nervous laugh when someone starts their prayer for you like that. When the only good thing he's got to say about them is that they've received grace. I always thank my God for you because of his grace that's been given you in Christ Jesus. What they have in Christ is not their own doing. They haven't earned it, they don't deserve it, but God gave it to them anyway. Later in the letter, he puts it really quite forcefully. Chapter 4, verse 7. This is possibly my favorite verse in the whole letter. What do you have, Pope Church? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? It's grace. When we forget grace, we lose. When we forget grace, everybody around us loses too. That's the source of so much pain and mess in the church you wouldn't believe. When we forget grace, the love that someone receives depends upon their performance. It's the exact opposite of how the economy of God is supposed to work. When we forget grace, people are compelled to do things out of fear. Ever been compelled to do something out of fear? When we forget grace, we act with superiority and we squash other people down in the process. 
got to remember grace. Now, grace doesn't mean that we overlook or shrug off all of the damage that's done and the pain that is caused by one another's failings or problems in the church. Some people will tell you that that's what we should do, but they're wrong. Grace simply means that we choose not to hold it against them. The pain is still real. The damage still exists. God's grace didn't cause him to shrug off and overlook the sin in our lives. He didn't go, oh, it doesn't matter. He doesn't pretend it didn't happen. No, grace enables God to not count it against us. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19, if that's new to you. Grace means God doesn't hold your sin against you. He still had to do what was necessary to deal with that sin and to create the opportunity for transformation in our lives. He still had to send his son Jesus to die under the weight of sin and pain before raising him up from the grave to make a way for us to both know forgiveness and to know freedom from the hold of sin. It's all a gift. God didn't shrug. God came and suffered. My friends, grace is how we come into the family of God. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. No one ever deserves it. But grace is also how we exist and we live once we're in the family of God. In a self-sufficient world where self-promotion is a virtue and being self-made is many people's goal, the bigger story of God's grace is the refreshing water that our parched souls long for. If you're trying to earn your keep in God, you need to know the bigger story of grace. God's grace means that he sees the depths of our heart. It means he sees the depths of your heart and he loves you the same. God's grace means that he receives you and accepts you as you are, but he refuses to leave you there. And he doesn't polish you up so that you look nice and pretty on his mantelpiece. No, he transforms us so that we can join in with the defeat of evil, which he is working towards in the world in our day. He transforms us so that we can join in with the bringing of justice, the renewing of creation, the flow of grace to the very ends of the earth. Do you want in? On that kind of story of grace? Paul gently and beautifully lifts the Corinthians' eyes to the bigger picture of grace. He calls them to live in the light of God's grace. One author succinctly puts it like this. He says, fault finding is easy, as we all know. But grace spotting requires faith. Fault finding is easy. Grace spotting requires faith. The bigger story, my friends, makes us grace spotters. Faith enables us to see God at work in the middle of mess and pain. My friends, I've got one more very short point after this, but I want to land something for you. We've got to fight cynicism. We've got to fight cynicism. Yes, the church is broken. Yes, we cause each other pain. But if cynicism grips our hearts, my friends, we all lose. 
I get a real sense there's a commission here this morning for anybody who wants it. Where God holds out the commission to be a grace spotter rather than a fault finder. How do you want to live your life? You want to receive the commission from God? To be a grace spotter? To be able to look at mess and pain and see God is still at work somewhere in there. The world needs more grace spotters. We're really good at talking about grace in the church. Pretty good at praying about it. Some of us are okay at preaching about it. But what people really need is to encounter grace. One of the privileges of being a pastor is just occasionally you get to be present when a a downcast and disheartened person suddenly finds themselves neck deep in grace. Then if you've ever had an experience like that, you've been all down and yet suddenly you find the grace of God for you. It's truly a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable thing to watch somebody who's forgotten to do something. Somebody who's tried something and it hasn't worked. Come to you full of trepidation. Nervous that they are about to be rejected. And find mercy and love. Where they expected disappointment. It's a beautiful thing. It's truly a holy moment when you get to watch somebody who knows that their behavior has caused pain, has fallen short, has hurt other people, has broken trust. And they come and you can see in their eyes that they know, they just know they are about to be rejected by God and by you. And in that moment as they come to you and you point them at Jesus because you've got nothing, They find that instead of the cold shoulder they would convince they would receive, they find a warm and compassionate embrace. The great privileges of life is seeing people broken by the grace of God when they're expected to be cast out. But the Lord welcomes them in. One of the great calls of the church is to be a community where people, when they're convinced they will be rejected, are loved and committed to. And you can look someone in the eye and say, look, I know. I know. And I will walk with you along the road of repentance and transformation. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I wonder, do you need the bigger story of grace afresh this morning? The bigger story of grace is nothing without the third story. The bigger story that Paul points them to, which is the bigger story of Jesus Christ. Nine times in nine verses, you can check them later. He name checks Jesus at the opening of this letter. Paul is totally captivated. What he has found in Jesus has totally filled his field of vision and enlarged his view of the world. He cannot keep the name of Jesus off of his lips. He cannot keep the name of Jesus off of his pen nib. It's all about Jesus Christ 
for Paul. The Corinthians are a mess. There is sin and there is problems and there is pain. But Paul knows the one who is their only hope. Because he was Paul's only hope. Paul was a proud man. He was zealous and competitive for what he thought was true. Until Jesus sent him flying off of his horse one day. And his world was turned upside down. It changed his life forever. My friends, the church is responsible for all kinds of pain and all kinds of problems. But the one the church loves is our only hope in the midst of pain. Jesus is everyone's only hope. The church in all its failings, the church in all its imperfections has a message that can change the world. Friends, we have a message that is changing the world. We have a message that will change the world. We need to rediscover the humility of the bigger story. We need to fix our eyes on grace again and have the name of Jesus on our lips, on our pen nibs, on our thumb tips. And in a sense, that's the ultimate reason behind the prayer and fasting that I was here a little while ago calling us all to. The world has got to know about Jesus. One of my worst fears in life is that I'll get to the end of my life, look back and realise that we built here a really nice church for Christians. It genuinely scares me. It's not worth giving your life for. The church was never supposed to be a nice place for Christians. God is at work in all kinds of ways. There are many noble callings, all kinds of kingdom work that many people in this room give themselves to and we cheer you on and we celebrate. But the one place all of that comes together is the local church. And our prayer is that as we gather together and pray next month, we will see every man, woman and child with their eyes lifted to the bigger story. Their ear attuned to the call of God about how they can join in with what he's doing. I finish with this story. Rob, do you want to come up and get ready? It's a very short story. Thanks, mate. In 1904, there was a prayer meeting held in the south of Wales. And the minister opened it up for people to contribute things that need praying for. And he had to quieten down two people who started speaking about quite tangential things. And there followed quite an awkward silence, so the reports go, until a young woman named Florrie Evans spoke up. This is what she said. I love Jesus Christ with all my heart. The moments after she spoke were said by those gathered at that prayer meeting to be full of holy power in a way that they never again experienced. The Welsh revival of 1904 and 1905, where 100,000 people turned and followed Jesus, is traced back by most historians to that prayer meeting and those eight words. 
I love Jesus Christ with all my heart. The Corinthians didn't. But Paul was calling them to. And through the centuries and the pages of the scriptures, his call to you and me is the same. Come, love Jesus Christ with all your heart. Can we pray together? Father, I'm just so conscious that I've, in a sense, done the best I can do. But what we're praying for this morning is something only you can do. Lord, we want to be people who love Jesus Christ with our whole hearts. We want to be those who give our lives to seeing the church become beautiful and its message of grace proclaimed to the ends of the earth, the ends of our streets, the ends of our comfort zone. We pray, Lord, would you lift our eyes by your spirit to the bigger picture. Off of ourselves and onto grace the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, come, Holy Spirit, and lift our eyes. We're going to sing to to finish in a moment. If you're able, I invite you to stand to your feet, prepare yourselves to worship Jesus together. I've got two words written at the bottom of my notes this morning in terms of where we might land as we finish. And they are consecrate and healing. I just sense there's something in God this morning for those two things amongst us. For some of us, there's a call to consecrate ourselves again. We've lost sight of the bigger picture. We've loved ourselves more than God. We've forgotten grace. But the cry of Florrie Evans has provoked our heart. And we want to love Jesus with all we've got. I want to invite you as we sing together to finish. Consecrate yourself to God. Offer yourself again to him. The second word written at the bottom of my notes is healing. Because I talk loads about church pain and I could have probably done two or three hours on it. It's so real and visceral for so many. And I've just done a real partial job of talking about it. For some, it's completely (laughs) insatisfactory. But God knows. God knows our pain. God knows what we've walked through. God knows where we're at. And he loves us.
and his arms are wide open. So if you want to run into those arms as we worship together to finish, let me invite you. Approach the Lord for healing. You will not find a cold shoulder. You will find a warm and compassionate embrace. Guaranteed. Because the heart of God is unchanging. If you'd like someone to pray with you, let me encourage you, ask someone you know and trust, maybe a midweek group leader or one of the leaders here at the church. There's a few of us around. Very happy to pray for people at the front over where I'm sitting. But let's lift our eyes to the bigger story and sing together as we finish this morning.